Alright. Do I need a special intro for this one? Welcome to this week's edition of Attica Shrug, live from Rockford, Tennessee. The front porch of Condorhurst, also not known as Condorhurst, also known as Roddy Branch. Roddy Branch. Um, the legend of Jim Dykes' gold. The legend of David Dykes' childhood. Live from the front porch. We're not being shot at this year. So, uh, we've been working at summer camp for a month straight, and Chad lost his voice. So it's today on Attica Shrug, the podcast about Southern culture, politics, and the South going on this week. We have David Dykes. Hello. Me, West Cheek. And special guest, Carter Williams. Hey there. Carter is also... Uh, a, so, well, here's the thing. We can talk to you about Carter. Can we talk to you about this thing? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> you live in Nova, Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Now, Northern Virginia, you live on Robert E. Lee's old estate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we live on Robert E. Lee's old estate, but is Northern Virginia the South? Um, well, well, keep talking while I load this air rifle. So, I don't know. I'd say that's an argument that goes around through uh, through Northern Virginia. Um, fundamentally, no. Um, technically, yes. Um, Why I, fundamentally, no? Um, just in antics and <laughs> just... I don't know. I would say the culture altogether uh, sways more towards like uh, very Washington D.C. esque, very Pennsylvania, Maryland esque. Um, as a result, tends to um, sway away from I would say southern cultures. Because it's everybody like uh, Washington contractors, so they're not from there. Well, yeah, it's like L.A. where nobody yeah, is from there. From L.A. <laughs> is anyone from Leesburg, Virginia? Uh. You're starting to see now people who are from uh, not Leesburg per se, but around the area in Fairfax and Arlington. No. Yeah. But it is Lee's property. Um, not anymore. I took it from him. <laughs> yeah. Good. Here all I'm, the part that's not a uh, buried some guys in his backyard. Yeah. All the part that's not a cemetery. <laughs> Did I? I didn't hit it. That was embarrassing. I would like to hit the can on the podcast. Hold on, folks, while I hit this Diet Coke can out of this tree. Take a aim. Trying to line up the sight past my Starbucks cup. Finger lightly on the trigger. There it was. Yep. Uh, so anyway, yeah, Northern Virginia. I used to live in Virginia. I lived in Richmond. Richmond's very definitely the South, but I used to hear... Um, there used to be good jokes about how Northern Virginia and Southern Virginia were very, very different. Unfortunately, all those jokes are racist jokes, so I can't reference them. Um, but I used to hear racists tell them, and they would be—they would think they were telling a funny racist joke, but it actually told a lot more about how the state of Virginia works, I think. And that the, the southern part of the state is like a rural, agricultural southern state, and the northern part of the state is like um, an international city, right? Because it's all like contractors based around the federal government. Yeah. So there's a big base of like, not only just federal um, contractors, but also uh, telecommuters. Yeah. Oh, the telecommuter. Other big thing. So that's why you'll find traffic will be worse on like Tuesdays and Thursdays than. Is that telecommuter days? Yeah, those are the days when they they actually have to go into into the office. I think of Virginia as being a very definite part of the South, but its own very special part of the South. I tend to think of everybody there as being a lawyer. Wait, there's an airplane going over. Well, these things happen. Speaking of international cities, welcome to Rockford. Yeah. 
But uh, I think of everybody there as being a lawyer, and they think of themselves as sort of southern aristocracy, which is just a vile idea. Like, if there's one of my favorite qualities of the South is the sort of underdog, hangdog uh, crappiness of the place, and um, that sort of planter mentality that you get from a lot of Virginians is a little a little tough to take sometimes. Well, Virginia has a big ego, the Jeffersonian ego, the TJ syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, we kind of reflect our and own inherent biases in saying that because Northern Virginia is an international city, it can't be part of the South. I mean, Houston has the most like direct flights to Dubai, I think, of any city in the U.S. Like you can get, and they have planes that fly direct Houston to Dubai that are all business and first class with no coach seating in them. And Atlanta has the biggest airport in the multiverse. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, and nobody stops there, but everybody goes through. <laughs> That's true. People stop in Atlanta. They want to go to the Outcast Museum. Or the Coca-Cola Museum. I don't know. Either one. Or the um, Howard Fencer Museum. Howard, the High Museum. Yeah. They want to get high at the museum. Um, so, not to change subjects too rapidly, but we were at Mars Hill in Mars Hill, North Carolina for the last month. I like Mars Hill. Yeah, it's nice. It's a beautiful little area. But so last year we were there, and I was talking about this uh, historical marker that I found for Robert Duck. I think it was Doctor Doctor Duck, who was one of the not founders, but he was um, he was the local doctor, and he uh, was kind of like helped with the medical school in Asheville, and was kind of very important in the development of the city. And he uh, was like did home deliveries, births until like the eighties. It was really important. I talked about how I thought that story was a really interesting local story. Um, that are interesting in all kind of small southern towns. But there's this time I came across another historical marker that I think sheds a little bit different light on Mars Hill. But an interesting one, too. So I'm going to read this. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'll just go ahead and read it, and then we'll talk and talk about it. So this one is entitled Joe Anderson from Slave to Founder, which is an interesting choice of title. Um, and I work in historic preservation, partly, not so much anymore. But so the line they try to walk in this plaque is interesting to me because it's part of the line we try to walk in that, in that um, not industry, discipline. So I'll read it to you. Here it is. Uh, the legend. The story of Joseph Anderson and the role he played in the founding of Mars Hill College, now Mars Hill University, in the 1850s has become legend in the history of the institution. Joseph Joe Anderson was a young African-American slave owned by trustee Jesse Woodson. Jesse Woodson, J.W. Anderson, and his family who lived beside Gabriel's Creek, southwest of the campus. Oh, I just noticed that he has his last name. Um, The J.W. Anderson family and other families who spearheaded the founding of Mars Hill College secured gifts and pledges for the first building. The trustees entered a contract with Shackelford and Clayton of Asheville to erect the building for $3,000 with $1,000 down and pledge signatures as as surety for the balance when the building was completed. When the contractor completed his work in the spring of 1856, however, the trustees deemed the workmanship inferior to the agreed understanding, and they refused to pay the full balance. The dispute went to court, and four years later, the court ruled a $900 credit on the debt and $1,100 due. The next section is titled, Human Collateral. To force payment of the balance due, the contractor had the Buncombe County Sheriff take possession of Joe Anderson and hold him in an Asheville jail as collateral. Eleven of the trustees agreed to divide the $1,100 between them, 
and within a few days they had raised the necessary funds to save Anderson from a slave block sale and return him to his family in Mars Hill. Eventually Anderson's story as human collateral made press nationally and in Europe. By the time of his death, sometime before 1910, he had become a living legend in the Mars Hill area. In the 1920s, the incident was reported by Robert Ripley in his nationally syndicated Believe It or Not news column. So there's more on this that I'll read in a minute, but that's the initial story. Yeah, that was my reaction too. (laughs) Well, it was 56 is when it happened, so four years later when the um, uh, case was adjudicated, the Civil War Mm -hmm. was like imminent, absolutely like um, uh, just about ready to break out. And so, um, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting timing, and maybe if it showed up in international um, news, Mm -hmm. it could have been a really important news story of the day. Maybe it could have added to, like, kind of the the abolitionist sentiment, or at least a anti-slavery sentiment in some way. I don't know. Um, It's interesting to me, too, because we remember reading the historical plaque last year at Mars Hill, talking about kind of the indifference of the Confederate garrison there, and that they all left their post to scavenge for food. Yeah. Uh, So it seems like there was, this kind of thing was playing out uh, throughout that area, this kind of, the politics of the Civil War. Um, Yeah, there's an interesting thing going on in the writing of this plaque, too. So they use slave instead of enslaved person, which I usually try to stay away from when I'm writing historical documents because uh, all the issues and the fact that saying that a human being is can be a slave as opposed to having something done to them is interesting. Also, they're saying he was a legend in the area. So I don't know if that means he had influence and was widely respected in the area or it means that this was a famous story that got on the news yep and then uh liberating him from the uh, uh the slave auction block mm-hmm. to return him to slavery, slavery with yeah. his family uh is not that much of a liberation uh, right i mean certainly it's better to be enslaved with your family than to be ripped away but it's not a great choice. Yeah, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on this one, anybody listening to this podcast, but um, just you don't understand, like, we have a hard time understanding kind of the everyday horror of, of the system of slavery, where this fact that someone can be given as collateral on a building, right? And that we also don't see how our environment today is completely influenced. We know the case with Georgetown, where they sold enslaved people to, to New Orleans to finance their the building of Georgetown, right? And this is stuff you can't really walk back. Like, the buildings at Mars Hill were built on human collateral. That's crazy. Yeah, I think that um, um, the idea of, of um, human beings as property seems very abstract until you start talking about, um, about the ways that that uh, affects people's everyday lives and and like specific instances and um, um, I also think that it's a a case of like they saved him from the predicament that they put him into Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, in today's uh, political climate seems really familiar that uh, uh, there's a lot of saving the nation from Mm -hmm. Uh, the injuries that we've gotten from shooting ourselves in the foot over and over again. Say what? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on a second. 
instead of shooting myself in the foot, I'm going for the Diet Coke can. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so the next part of this is about kind of the legacy of the Anderson family. And, like, I don't want to skip over the part, the fact that clearly the Anderson family is named after the people who enslaved them. Which I don't think we also don't think we think about enough what it is to live with that legacy of slavery. Okay, so family ties to the college. And this one, it's an overused word problematic, but there's some problematic things in here. So let's think about them. Uh, historic records show that the Anderson... Uh, you, were, you were a teacher there for just a second, so let's think about them. Well, I'm yeah. not a teacher for more than a second. <laughs> <laughs> Family ties to the college. Historic records show that Anderson lived in Mars Hill for the rest of his life. After the Civil War, he made his living as a farmer, and he was active in the church and community. He had three children with Jane Ray named Cordelia, Andy, and Cornelius. In 1932, the college moved Anderson's remains to the campus and reburied them on the south side of campus with a granite marker engraved by trustee and stonemason C.M. Palmer. Fittingly, Anderson's great-great-granddaughter, Oraline Graves Simmons, was the first African-American student admitted to Mars Hill College in 1961. In 2015, university students planted a weeping cherry tree in her honor near Anderson's grave. Okay, let's go back and think about this for a second. Uh, there's a lot going on there. So, yeah, they're honoring him by moving his remains to the university. Okay, I don't know. I guess the family had some say in that. But they're saying, you know, he chose to stay in the area. But we don't know all the facts. We know what happened to former slaves after the Civil War, and especially after Reconstruction. There wasn't much freedom of movement. They were often tied to the land that they had worked as enslaved people. Yeah. And not allowed to leave. So maybe he was stuck there. We really don't know. Um... But, and then it gets to this part. Fittingly, Anderson's great-great-granddaughter, Orlean Graves Simmons, was the first African-American student admitted to Mars Hill College in 1961. So why, well, we know why, but I'm saying this rhetorically. Why does it take until 1961 for the guy who has put up his collateral to build the college for his great-great-granddaughter to be admitted there? Maybe that's the part of the history they should be writing about also. Well, the, I think... Um, um I think there's always a kind of balancing act that, especially from uh, from the era that this was probably raised and the area where all of these uh, plaques are raised and where a lot of these histories are written, where dwelling completely on culpability, mm -hmm. uh, if nothing else, it cuts into your target audience a lot. Mm -hmm. And then also... Um, I don't think there's a way to tell people's real stories. Um, I don't. Uh, uh, splitting the difference is all too often the the way that these things get resolved, where it's uh, uh, a narrative that is told uh, with the idea of not making anybody feel too bad uh -huh. um, about things that are awful. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's what's going on in this. Uh, as we're reading this, uh, fireflies are starting to rise up in the. Yeah. And for some reason, we're getting an airplane like every three minutes. I don't think I've ever uh, uh, had quite that experience here before. They're flying in the troops. Could be. Uh, okay, so this is the last part here. And I want to make clear, I'm like, his family sound like lovely people. So all of this is, like, you know, stuff that they support and are interested in. I'm not making fun of his family. But um, it's, it's hard to tell from what's written what's going on. Okay, so two of Anderson's grandchildren, Dosky A. McDowell and Dallas Anderson 
were staff in the college kitchen for many years. And in 1978, McDowell's great-granddaughter and Joe Anderson's great-great-great-granddaughter, Charlene Ray, was the first recipient of the Appalachian Scholarship at Mars Hill College. Eventually, Joe Anderson's significant role in the founding of the college was celebrated in 1999 when Mars Hill College officially cited him and his family among the college's founding families. Well, that seems appropriate. Um, so, there's a little last section here. Historic memorials. In the 1950s, the Long Ridge community honored Joe Anderson by renaming its school the Mars Hill Anderson Rosenwald School. The school was formerly the Mars Hill Colored School. The Joe Anderson Memorial at his gravesite was listed in the National Register of Historic Places on September 12, 2006, and in 2010, the street by his grave memorial was renamed Joe Anderson Drive. So. Uh, the Rosenwald School is something we should do a whole episode on. That's a very interesting thing that went on throughout the South during segregation. I just found out about that when you were telling me about it when we were at Mars Hill. I'd never heard of Rosenwald School. Yeah, there's some there's somebody I know through the Vernacular Architecture Forum at VAF who does their research on Rosenwald Schools, and it's a really interesting topic. Uh, that that kind of these were these uh, schools this is what they look like. They're kind of these long wooden buildings, mm-hmm. school buildings that were built in the rural South during segregation for African-American school children, that when integration happened, a lot of these just kind of disappeared or put to other uses. Some of them are still still around, and they're really neat, neat buildings, and it's an interesting story. But I find this story about his grandchildren working at the university to be interesting because this could be a, a positive story. It might not be. We don't know because we know that during that time period, African-Americans were existing essentially under a system of apartheid in America and maybe working in the Mars Hill, like... They're working in the Mars Hill kitchen. Maybe they could have been professors at Mars Hill. We don't know, you know. I don't know. And also it's interesting to me that they talk about his role being celebrated and him being honored when he had very little no choice. He had no agency <laughs> in the ordeal. Uh, at any point before or after the war, I would guess. Um, yeah. Certainly before the war, none. And after the war, um, who knows. Very little, right. Yeah, you know? but I, it's hard because I don't want to make it sound like Mars Hill or isn't doing the right thing by him. It's just... That's one of the problems you run into with the legacy of slavery. Is you can't you can't do the right thing by it because it's a, it's a horror, right? There's no right thing to be done for from it. Um, and I think people are learning how to do these things better, and they're handling it relatively well comparatively. But you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Carter, anything on this? Um, do we know like anywhere um, in terms of like when the plaque was erected? Like, yeah, it says uh, um, this plaque is relatively recent. This is from like the last within the last ten years. But the memorial was built in the 1930s by a stonemason. I went up and looked at it. It's nice, but it says, it does call him a slave on it, which I'm not comfortable with, but in the 1930s, I mean, maybe they were trying. And I think a, people were using that terminology until pretty recently. Oh, and they still do, right? Like, I, yeah. I, you know, it's a thing that, and I probably was until I got into historic preservation and realized, like, when you're writing something for museums or historical plaques, it's important to recognize that people is a condition people were placed in but it's not something i would have just come up with on my own yeah um it's something someone had to stop and tell me and that i have to stop and tell other people um all right i'm open for other topics and being stung by mosquitoes well we could talk a little bit about just mars hill and what it's like and the ways that it's like other southern towns and not so like other southern towns I mean, I don't have a big, um, I don't have much idea about Mars Hill at all, Mm -hmm. except for having spent, uh, let's see, 
uh, I guess a total of eight weeks there and all on the university campus. Yeah. But it seems like a town that pretty much is all about the university campus. There doesn't seem mm -hmm. to be anything else going on there. It's a Baptist uh, uh, university. And the little town, I had a bunch of conversations while we were there about how it seems like it'd be a really nice place to live. And then I realized that the things that I don't care much for about all small towns have to be true of that place, too. Yeah. And there were a lot of, of great people who I met there who I know um, politically I would profoundly disagree with if we had those mm. sorts of... Uh, conversations there was a lady in the uh, cafeteria super nice lady we talked about various things and they have uh, a big gallery of flags hanging up and I just asked her if she happened to know how they chose which flags were and the simple answer was no she didn't she wasn't sure but she thought that they represented where everybody was from so the um, um, yeah, the, the, so she wasn't sure, and she said that she thought that maybe people didn't want to be, uh, that they didn't want to insult anybody by not flying their flag, which seemed like a kind of peculiar answer. And then she said, you know, people get really insulted when you fly the Confederate flags these days. You've probably seen that on the news. And uh, I said, I didn't say you don't know the half of it, but... Right. Uh, uh, I get pretty insulted. But I knew that... that um, going down that road would lead to the place where I was ha from where I was having a really nice interaction with what seemed like a very sweet person to um, being at loggerheads and I realized that that's sort of probably a, a microcosm of the whole town until it becomes gentrified by Asheville people spreading out which seems imminent yeah that's the one thing I wanted to talk about before I uh, well after I open this beer are we in violation of standards and practices now? <laughs> I can't drink beer, so... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. There is Jim Beam on the railing over there, I believe. Um, I think. I don't know. Uh, if so, I'm sure it'll find its way over here. <laughs> uh, maybe it's gone. So, yeah, that's the one thing I was going to talk about, about Mars Hills. I had a really nice time this weekend uh, climbing Mount Bailey which overlooks the town. And I had been reading um, an article that was posted. Jesus, another plane. That's insane. There's not enough gates. Yeah, like uh, there's been, there's maybe 10 gates at uh, McGee Tyson. They're all full now. National yeah. Guard running exercises? Could be. The entire Allegiant fleet. Yeah. Feel free to strum the banjo during that. But so I climbed Mount Bailey, and I've been reading this newspaper clippings about it that are posted up around the university about there's been a battle over the last few years. So Mount Bailey kind of overlooks a town. Um, it's a few thousand feet high. It's a nice little mountain, and uh, there was a proposal by real estate developers. They wanted to kind of develop put houses up and down the side of the mountain um, because, as we all know, America has a uh, pro-growth ideology. Um, so. And Asheville is kind of gradually moving out into the country, as we can see in, like, Weaverville. We think we're looking at apartment prices in Weaverville, and they're, like, the amount I'm paying in rent in New Orleans. Uh, and I'm not sure what they are in Mars Hill, but I think Chad told us, like, the housing prices are kind of what they are in the Woodlands in Houston, in Mars Hill, which is nuts. Uh, so you can see, like, kind of Asheville moving out into the country, but 
so the Mars Hill students apparently as freshmen, it's a practice, a tradition for them to climb Mount Bailey uh, as a freshman class, which seems nice. But the issue was a lot of it was privately owned land instead of having to walk across it. But they're, they put together a nonprofit to try to raise money to buy up parts of it. And I don't think they've completed all of it, but they've completed enough where it can't really be developed. And they've secured easements for students to be able to hike up the mountain. So I did that hike with a few teenagers, uh, George, and um, a few little kids. And it's, it's easy enough hike, little kids can do it. It's a bit strenuous, but it's a beautiful, beautiful mountain. We saw cows, we saw snakes. I heard at least one little kid had to be carried. One, one little kid that we know very well had to be carried because uh, he said, I'm a gamer and couldn't climb anymore. <laughs> um, and then he ran the whole way down, all the way out in front. Frolicking, and another uh, bigger kid that we that, know uh, who got gamed is a question. Yeah, yeah, another bigger kid that we know who might or might not be your nephew kept asking, "Can I sprint up the mountain?" and was completely not joking, and then proceeded to sprint up the mountain. Well, there we go. Hi, right, Carter. Any Mars Hill thoughts from you? You were there for two weeks. <laughs> um, I don't know. Mars Hill was interesting for me because I'm about to move to a southern town. Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to say where? Uh, yeah, Murfreesboro. Yeah. Um, Tennessee. At, yeah, MTSU, uh, Middle Tennessee State. Um, no, so that's really odd for me because I've never lived in a. Uh, or at least I don't you know. You lived in Crestview. It's been a while <laughs> since I've lived in a like southern. Not as someone who thought about where they wanted to live. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of an embodiment of like some of my, like discomfort and fears about moving back into the south but also like back into the south from leesburg virginia (laughs) Leesburg, Virginia. no um to kind of move it back into the southern culture i'd say um just the idea that um or the increased importance of like god and country is something that i don't know if i'm really ready for um where was the flag picture from that was from george and jaden driving out of pigeon forge oh okay so that was coming like from Pigeon Forge, on, which makes it worse. I mean, well, it's bad everywhere, but they're driving through like solid Union territory. I mean, I know we dwell on this every few months, but yeah. it's nuts that someone in Eastern East Tennessee would fly a Confederate flag. And the flag was what was the what? what I, can you give a good description of it? Well, it's a sign for a business that sells fidget spinners, and so it says <laughs> spinners on the bottom, and the left hand side is an American flag, and the right hand side is a Confederate flag. And then there's a, a um, is it a Gadsden flag? What's the there's other? There's a Gadsden flag. There's a blue, like a thin blue line flag. There was the whole assortment. It didn't have a POWMIA one that I saw. But they're set up like, you know, you're driving down a rural highway. It's set up like in a row, so you see them as you're driving. Like the Burma shave of um, the right. Yes, the Burma shave of the yes. I was trying to think what Burma had to do with this, but then I got what you were saying. <laughs> the Sea Rock City of, uh, of, of shithole culture of America. But yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a thing. It's a thing, and it's. I was telling uh, somebody the other day. I realized outside of living a decade in Japan, I've never lived outside the South in America. Oh, I'm selling Phil on. You'll hear it on this show. Um, but also because of that, I've never thought of the South as a totality. Like I never think, oh, I'm coming back into it or I'm going out of it. I've lived in Richmond, Austin. Tuscaloosa, New Orleans, and Destin, and Destin. I grew up in Destin, and so I Austin, eh, maybe South, maybe not so much, but um, it's yeah. A, yeah, it's definitely a 
a um, a kind of hybrid, like a lot of East Texas is. Yeah, Murfreesboro. I don't know. I've been to Murfreesboro. It's hard to get a read on though because you're driving through like super super rural areas to get there. Yeah. But then, as you pointed out to me, it's only forty minutes from Nashville. Yeah. So around the outskirts, at least from what I have seen from my uh, brief visits. Mm. Um, no, it's pretty rural on the outside. You'll drive through um, farms and such to get to where you're going. Mm. But then once you get to a place, mm. it is suddenly like a really built-up place again. Mm. Um, or at least a place that's... That has a Popeye's chicken. Yeah. Or Bojangles. <laughs> nice yeah. Bojangles, Bojangles. Yeah. First time I ever ate Popeye's was uh, there when I was in high school. I went to a drama tournament at MTSU and I had never seen... Um, uh, any chicken place except for uh, KFC. Did you win? Um, yes. How do you win a drama tournament? Uh, by there's a, you're judged oh, okay. by uh, like a I don't know if it's strictly speaking a point system, but there's a, it's like an elimination tournament, and I did duet acting and poetry. Slam. No, no slams. <laughs> uh, actually, I did uh, uh, Lewis Carroll poems. Right. I should have done John Crow Ransom poems just in anticipation of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> John Crow Ransom and James Dickey and yeah. um, Alan Tate and uh, um, the, the Fugitives and uh, uh, all of those, all of those cats. Uh. I just, but, I'm going far afield, but which is the, your favorite James Dickey poem? Because you, you know mine probably. But. Well, I think it might be the same, which is um, uh, the lifeguard. Yeah, the lifeguard. I also like the what's the one about the the goat child? Oh yeah, the the sheep child. The sheep child. Yeah, that's a great one. That's creepy. You yeah. wouldn't think that a poem about someone uh, having sex with a sheep and giving birth to a half sheep baby could actually be a good poem, but it is. Yeah. And so you're about to imply that it couldn't be a creepy poem. No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't see how that could be made creepy, and yet somehow James Dickey, uh, James Dickey did that. I'm, I have to say, when I was in grad school, one of the conversations I remember most clearly was about a poem of his called uh, The Heaven of Animals. And um, people were made very uncomfortable by the idea that it's the... Um, that it's the destiny of prey to be eaten and therefore that there's a kind of heavenly pleasure in being eaten if you are prey, uh, which is a uh, complicated idea uh, in a lot of ways because it implies that if you're prey, you think of yourself as prey. You had it coming. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, for a poem about animals, ostensibly, it uh, raised a whole lot of... Um, well, hackles among other things, in the poetry class, and he was a, he was kind of great at being a sort of provocateur in his poems. Well, since we've been uh, doing ranking shows lately, at some point we should do best five Southern poets. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, I'm trying to think. James Dickey. James Dickey. Oh, like James John Dickey. Crow Ransom's really yeah, good. Okay. Um, um, Ag, you can argue that uh, oh, yeah. summer nineteen fifteen is a it's poem, so although it's a, a, a prose poem, maybe. Uh, and uh, every time I see that, I have to. Tr I try to not read it because it's so engrossing, and you're going to feel something when you read it. Yeah. But then I start reading it, I'm like, this is the best prose possible. Yeah. And um, who else? I mean, you know, all sorts of people from all over the South. I think. Um, Outcast. Uh, 
Outcast, uh, Lucille Clifton, uh, uh, a lot of, um, uh, a, well, who wrote the Confederate um, graveyard poem? Was that Tate? I think that was Tate. Um, I have a lot of friends who are very into uh, Southern uh, poetry and Southern poets. There's, uh, what's his name from the Maple Leaf Bar? Uh, Everett oh, Maddox, yeah. uh, whose uh, 13 Ways of Being Looked At by a Possum is one of my favorite <laughs> poems. Which uh, he had, is he the Maple Leaf? Yeah, he, he basically lived there until he drank himself to death. Oh, that's a good place to do it. Yeah, and I think his ashes are there. Oh, I should know that, but I don't. I only occasionally at the Maple Leaf during Midsummer Mardi Gras. Yeah. And Crew of Oak, if we do it. Um, yeah, every time I try to, th- I'm trying to think of Southern poets, and I keep coming up with Southern short fiction writers, which we should also mm-hmm. probably do because there's so many good Southern short fiction writers, uh, including Eudora Welty, who you read this week. Yeah. Why I live at the PO, which is excellent. And I was just thinking, who wrote um, Shiloh? Bobby M. Mason. Bobby M. Mason, who I love. And I was just reading, again, recently an interview with Dorothy Allison, mm-hmm. who I completely love, one of my favorite. When I was in high school, definitely a transformative writer for me. Partly because her stories seem like dirty stories that I couldn't believe you could get away with, but then you realize they're not dirty stories. They're stories about abuse and power and secrets and weird stuff. And there's such a good, I think, uh, feminist writer and just writer. Um, I like her a lot. And if we're going to include, well, we actually had a discussion about this earlier in the week, if we're going to include uh, Southern Ohio oh, yeah. um, in the South, uh, then Toni Morrison. Yeah, sure. And uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah. We're putting Florida in there. Um, uh, Tennessee Williams has some good poems uh, in the midst of his writing, too. Uh, not heavy, not like... Um, uh, the state of the art or anything but anecdotal funny good poems mm-hmm. interesting Carter any favorite southern writers well we got you on here since we probably won't have you on the list episode we get your input now um I'll have to send you my write in on that one okay you're taking a write in that's alright you have to investigate I'm actually not drinking southern beer while doing the show I'm sorry although PBR has uh good memories for me before it became the the hipster beer of choice when i lived in tuscaloosa it was the party beer of choice because you could go and stock your entire refrigerator for a party for a very reasonable budget yep that used to be our quarters beer i think yeah mm-hmm. no we went lower we went lower down the food chain than that even uh, and did milwaukee's best and stuff but uh, talking about uh, small southern towns not back to mars hill but here mm-hmm. in rockford rockford I've only recently come to think of as what it actually is, which is a factory town. Yeah. It has one factory owned by one family, and that's its reason for being. No, no. Uh, Rockford is a rope factory. They make um, mop heads and cotton rope and that kind of stuff. So you could say that Rockford is a rope-pushing town. It is indeed. That's what we push here. Uh, uh, Rope. You're in in the throes (laughs) of big rope. (laughs) And the owners are the Colas, who are... Um, the makers uh, of Coca-Cola. No, they with a K. Cola yeah. with a K. And they're uh, uh, very involved in state politics. Um, in a good way? Um, they're uh, Republicans, but I don't know them to be uh, Republicans in a bad way. I'm not a Republican myself. but I'm going to take a shot in the dark here. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they're uh, um, 
they're also very involved. Oh, oh yeah. Shit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they're also very involved in um, um, local politics, the uh, uh, Rockford Town Council and uh, uh, all the rest. And, and Rockford is, I, I guess it must be incorporated now. It wasn't when I was growing up. But um, neither was my hometown. No. Destin was not incorporated when I was growing up. We had no sewer system. People, Destin, I, Florida had no sewer system. I think that we. We had the ocean. Yeah, well, a gulf. <laughs> you dumbass. You live in Northwest Florida. It's a gulf. I think we incorporated for the reason that a lot of other places incorporate, which is that to tax keep base. To keep other places from swallowing us and yeah. um, incorporating us into their tax base. There's another one. Nuts. Maybe uh, UT's got something going on this week. They're flying at everybody. I don't know. Saturday night seems like, or Sunday night seems like hardly the time to be flying all these planes and all these people coming back from vacation. Maybe. Maybe. All right. It's yeah. August, isn't it? Or almost August. It's almost August. Uh, that's my favorite uh, early two thousands emo band. Almost August. Yeah. Uh, so we have time for about like one more good topic. So. Uh, Carter, you got any topics? Um, Carter and his dad have a theory about how things change the farther south you drive. Oh, um, (laughs) so, no, it was on the drive down from uh, D.C., you start to notice, uh, everything starts to get slightly brighter. Um, Not like significantly, but like just a couple shades, I'd say. Um, Just from like the gray, very corner cut look of DC and uh, Northern Virginia as a whole. Um, And suddenly the concrete is a little whiter and like the paint is a little brighter. It's a little interesting. Well, DC is an architecture person. Like DC is an aberration because DC has this um, neoclassical, very kind of dark, monumental look, and it takes starts to take over like most of DC, not all of it, but a lot of it. And so DC, I, I like the architecture in DC, but it is a drab city in a lot of ways it's because it's monumental architecture everywhere. And I I like it, but I'm wondering if this great gradation holds up though. Like once you get out of Virginia, because once well, you get to Southern Virginia, well, once you get to the tip down to get to um, uh, Miami. And Key West, right. you've got um, uh, tropical light mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. a lot of pastels and all in the paintings and and, uh, and the paint jobs and all. But uh, more than that, there's this sort of almost lead crystal quality to the air and to the way that the sunlight slants and everything. Mm-hmm. It completely transforms everything. And uh, I think maybe I've talked to you, Wes, about the difficulty of taking a bad picture in Cuba. Oh no! I, yeah, I talked to you about that. Yeah, yeah we've talked about that because like, yeah, I haven't been to Cuba, so but I thought it was you. Yeah, it's me. Around. Yeah, uh, yeah. When I was in Cuba, you, you just can't you can't take a bad picture because the light is beautiful, the buildings are beautiful, the people are beautiful. It's very Caribbean, and everything there looks great. And you get a certain amount of that. Like New Orleans and Havana are very similar cities, and you get that kind of light um, there. And I remember when I was in South Beach, it's hard to take a bad picture in South Beach with that light uh, off the ocean. Um, yeah, I have. Um, I had a professor who's kind of a famous architect, Gene Sizik, and also a a uh, colleague, uh, Elizabeth Simpson, who researches paint in New Orleans. And they found in their research that, in fact, historically accurate paint in New Orleans is far more gaudy than like any new development. 
like in the late 1700s and throughout the 1800s, like paint on New Orleans buildings. Um, maybe not the, in the American section so much, but on the Creole buildings were really, really vividly bright, like beyond pastel. Yeah, like there's it, um, uh, there was a place just when I lived on Cluett, um in the Bywater, there was uh, uh, a place just around the corner from me that was a sort of day glow, uh, yellow greenish with um, a sort of lavender. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was the most hideous building I'd ever seen in my life. And yeah, there, it, it was reads painful. that way to us. Like, So there's a problem now when you're doing historic reserva- renovations in New Orleans. Like, If you do the accurate colors, people are going to think that you're overdoing it and it's too gaudy. But they're probably the historically accurate colors. If you go to... Um, so Gene Sizzik runs the, the Sun Oak Foundation and the Sun Oak House. Um, where is it? It's over by the John. What street is the John? Over by Frenchman and... Anyway, it, when you look at it, it looks like, oh, man, they really overdid it with that place. But it's accurate, historically. It's these really bright, way too vivid colors. Like, like Burgundy and... Yeah, Burgundy. Oh, Burgundy, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, the, the, I think part of that is, like, probably there were new colors coming mm-hmm. out in the paints. And when people have the ability, they go overboard a little bit. I remember up in Luttrell, uh, which is not too far from here, up in Union County... That's where I spent my summers when I was a kid on my granny's farm, and she uh, uh, used to go and pick up the scraps at the, um, they did a lot of sewing. My sister's first job was at the Levi's factory here, and uh, a lot of uh, country people did sewing, and uh, I don't know how much they were sweatshops and how much they were good jobs or whatever, but uh, um, they, I remember the fabrics were really rough, and they were, um, uh, at the place up in Luttrell, they were polyester, and they tended to be bright orange plaids, and um, uh, just really garish and really uncomfortable uh, fabrics. And I think that when the polyester craze hit, when the technology reached the point where you could make clothes out of polyester, people didn't think so much about comfort, and they certainly weren't... um, uh, very discreet about color. They wanted to have something really bright because the colors never faded. and Not, not uh, even in a house fire. Yep. <laughs> and they were... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, they, they lasted forever. Uh, you could wash them in any temperature. They didn't wear out. They didn't... Uh, and it seemed like a miracle to everybody. And then uh, the next thing you know, everything sort of went... Well, I think it had already happened for most people that everything went back to peasant dresses and something that looked like homespun, although it wasn't. And um, uh, this idea of the country, the people in the country were wearing polyester and Mm -hmm. sewing bright polyester clothes and uh, urban people and hippie people and, uh, you know, the the, the affluent in the 60s suddenly were doing some version of peasant dress and peasant clothing. Made in Southeast Asia. Well, yeah, maybe I mean, not at that point in time, or by the 70s. Or probably on the subcontinent. There was a lot of stuff from mm-hmm. India. Bangladesh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, on that note of the polyester factory, we can wrap up this week's episode. Thanks, Carter. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, David. Sure. One more. One more for the road. All right. It's getting really dark out there. I think I'm tempting fate with this one. Let's see. I'll fix this in the head if I miss.
Good night. <laughs>